recording? Yeah, there we go. All right, here we go. I don't have any sound bites for you right now, Andy. I'm still a little heated from that spaces with Bill. I'm coming down, I'm coming down. Uh, but welcome to the X Factor Racing Podcast, everyone. We're back after a little hiatus. We're getting in a pod just before Thanksgiving. And I would say that all of us ladies here, uh, I, I'm going to speak on our behalf, but we are thankful to have Caitlin Free with us tonight. She is someone that uh, we all enjoy speaking with. Uh, we, you know, we support each other, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, uh, and all that good stuff. So, Caitlin, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you back. You were with us for a little bit at the beginning to help us get off the ground, and then uh, you had some pretty big responsibilities to take on. So, we're lucky to have time with you tonight. We appreciate you coming on. How you doing? Oh, I'm super excited to be back on with you guys. You guys are the best. Some of my closest friends in this game and I, I'm doing well, doing very, very well. So I hope you guys are doing well too. Yeah. It sounds like Carson, Carson, tell everybody what's going on with you right now. I just came through the mountains and we are relocating to Kentucky. So probably not the best time of year to do it, but I am just in time for the holiday festivities at Churchill. At least you got good weather. <laughs> I brought it with me. I told you I'd do the dance and I did. <laughs> you were exactly correct. It's funny, Carson, because this is like the happiest and most upbeat I've heard you in weeks. You must be really excited about this move. I am delirious because I've been in the truck since one o'clock this morning. <laughs> okay, so a little bit of happy, a little bit of exhausted. We got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll sink in and we'll find out what the baseline is. <laughs> right. And then you'll fall asleep for three days because you're exhausted. <laughs> There we go. Um, so we, Caitlin, I have so many questions because when, when I started watching horse racing on race, you know, uh, what is it? RTN and TVG and all these different places, your name was popping up. I'd heard about you from a lot of different people, but I didn't really get a sense of who you were until I think this last year, you're kind of a big deal, ma'am. And uh, I want to, I want to hear your origin story. How do you, how did you get into horse racing? Is this something that happened when you were a kid? How'd you pick it up? Kind of, I would say um, my mom's side of the family, a couple of my cousins, uh, they train and own some harness horses. So I was just kind of, you know, around horses a little bit growing up and I started watching some bigger race days on TV when NBC had coverage back when I was a kid. And it was just something that I felt like spoke to me. I mean, I always really, really love sports, but I mean, something with an animal involved that, you know, is not super, super cool. I guess I would say like hunting or, you know, mm -hmm. even though I don't have a problem with hunting, let me just say that right now, but horse racing is just, it, it's such a unique type of activity and sport that it just, I don't know. I've always loved it. I've always loved horses. And it was just something that I developed a passion for as a kid, as a teenager. And really from about the time I was maybe 13 or 14, I couldn't see myself doing anything else with my life because I loved it so much. Wow. That sounds really similar to Ed. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he got into a very young Ed DeRosa. He got into a very young, couldn't imagine his life doing anything else. 
And uh, it sounds like you had a, a similar beginning. Like, were your was your mom's side of the family taking you to the tracks, or how are you you watching and absorbing information? I didn't really go to the tracks until a little bit later. I was just, mm-hmm. you know, watching on TV, following some of their races, you know, with them, like on the computer and watching some of it on television and whatnot, but really, you know, just kind of doing research on my own and just investing time into research and really paying attention to it. So, I mean, that was kind of what bit the bug for me was, you know, Mm-hmm. seeing them do that but yeah. then my own research is saying hey I actually really want to get into this oh that's awesome and so you come from Ohio which everybody knows is my favorite state and are you serious <laughs> no I'm I'm not <laughs> I had to drive through Ohio once in order to get to Michigan and it was like the worst thousand hours of my life it is the flattest state I've ever been it is it really is yeah it was it was crazy flat um and I think there was like one hill and they called it the hill it was weird but um but (laughs) you went to college in Ohio I did my research today yes uh you went to Hawking College in Ohio and and tell us about their equine studies program we're were you just convinced that this was what's going to help launch your career? What, what did you learn from that program that you carry with you every day when you're at the track? So I started out at Ohio University and Hawking is a lot closer by. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the trade school that extends off to there. They have a nursing program. They have the horse like sports medicine and veterinary program that I went through the health program. Um, mm-hmm. and they have all kinds of different stuff that's around animals and like human and animal medicine. If that makes sense, it's kind of like, it's mm-hmm. like a school, like it's for niche stuff that you mm-hmm. can't really get at a lot of other colleges. Um, so I went through that program. I have a couple other friends that I went to high school with that are also in this industry that went through the same program. And I originally, there's been so many things in this industry that I've wanted to do before I actually decided, you know, I wanted to be an on-air analyst. I Mm -hmm. started out when I got super into it. I mean, I'm a very small person. (laughs) I (laughs) wanted to be a jockey for a lot of years. Um, And that was my angle until I would say I was about 18 or 19. And um, I ended up getting hurt pretty bad falling off a horse. And I was like, damn, I don't know if this is for me. Like, what if I get paralyzed or I I got a severe concussion and I stress fractured bones in my neck. (gasps) And they really told me they're like, you know, if you get another concussion that is like this, you know, you could like, in no uncertain terms, they basically told me I was going to have like CTE and like, I'm not trying to like be funny. Like it was bad. So I kind of pushed that to the side. Um, I worked for a while with a track veterinarian after I graduated, um, just being a technician and stuff like that. And I mean, really just my knowledge and the physical knowledge of horses and race horses in general has really helped me mm-hmm. with this job more so than handicapping knowledge ever could. I feel like, right. Like I can't think of anyone right off the top of my head who has the knowledge of horse flesh that you, you thankfully tweet about 
uh, on a daily basis. Like so many of your tweets are so informative and educational when you talk about specific horses, their bloodlines and things like that. And I know that's something that, that Carson kind of looks at as well. How integral would you say the, the actual flesh of the animal is to your handicapping process? Huge. I mean, seeing them on the track, I make my picks ahead of time, but seeing a horse on the track can, you know, make a huge difference to my argument about the horse winning the race, you know, bloodlines play a certain role and, you know, made in special weights and certain types of tracks, whether a track comes off as like muddy, whether it's fast on the turf, like a horse going to the turf for the first time or a horse going to the dirt for the first time, the way they move their bone structure, that all plays a role in those types of races. Not so much in stakes races where horses have already proved themselves or horses at the claiming rank where it's not really, it's not as much of, you know, an issue, but mm. seeing a horse coming, you know, off of a layoff, you have mm. to kind of ex- assess their body condition. Are they carrying extra weight? Are they race fit? A horse is coming off of an injury. So it's something that is super important. I think it's something that is taken for granted. Maggie Wolfendale is another analyst that just does a phenomenal job. I'd say she's the top one in the industry when it comes to this type of stuff, because I think think she obviously she's around horses all the time and she sees the same horses in the New York circuit. So she's very, very used to them. And that's how I hope I can be with Kentucky, Mm -hmm. but I, I think she has a similar background. And so when you're at a track and you, you already have your picks for the most part, and where do you station yourself? Can somebody always find you at the paddock watching the horses, or do you find different ways to kind of examine, you know, what they're doing? I'm the type of person that I literally fly around everywhere. If I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be somewhere. Chances are like, I'm not going to be there in the next two minutes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. A lot of it is weather pending. Um, Mm -hmm. It was very cold the past week, two weeks Mm -hmm. at Churchill, Um, like unseasonably cold. I'm talking like 30 degrees. So after I did my paddock spiel, made sure nobody was acting the fool in the paddock and the horses got onto the track safely. I was out. I was someplace warm. <laughs> I so. bet. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you are tiny and it's like, she must be freezing her butt off. And there, I but. feel like I wore so much clothes. I had hot hands and like, even when the mm-hmm. jockeys walk by, they laugh. They're like, Oh man, you look so cold. And I'm like, how are you guys like not cold? Like, I don't understand, but right. I, I don't tolerate, I don't tolerate cold weather very well, but when it's warm, I'll stay in the paddock and then I'll usually walk out to the track and then watch them from on the rail most of the time. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of what I usually do, but well, and I know you and Carson both have a love of horses uh, that extends, you know, into your lives away from the track. Like Carson is involved with uh, aftercare and aftercare programs. Uh, You know, she's constantly posting. Carson, uh, please feel free to jump in and ask any questions, but how important is aftercare to you considering the the high level of knowledge you have about the horses and their health and and all of those things? Oh, it's huge. It should Mm -hmm. be the epitome epitome of everything beyond racing. And it's something that once I relocate full-time to Kentucky, I hope to volunteer at Old Friends volunteer at other places and really get so much more involved with aftercare. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'm super, super excited to try to be involved in more. I've 
I've done some things this year. I've done some things with the TOBA to do some kind of, you know, racing seminars and stuff. And a lot of people that do support a lot of aftercare are there. And I'm hoping to get better connected with groups like that and just kind of see where I can maybe find myself in that area of expertise. There's a lot of things, you know, that I do need to learn when it comes to that, but there's so many people that show horses and get them when they're off the track. And eventually when I have space again, I have had horses of my own. They're in other places at the moment, but I would love to adopt horses, place them in homes. And and I'm hoping it's something that I can learn more about and be so much more involved in as I continue to evolve in this industry. But aftercare is it's, it's essential. It's huge. And there's so many things Horses can do when they come off the track. They don't just have to be hunters or jumpers. They would be mm-hmm. content being pasture ornaments if that's all they are. <laughs> but I mean, as long as they find a soft place to land or there, there's so many things you can do with horses mm-hmm. and I mean, all of them good. So, and I think that there should be so much more money put forth by tracks, breeders, owners, all of it toward aftercare because I mean, these horses at the, the bottom line, they, they want to run, but they are doing it for entertainment purposes. Right. So the least we can do is ensure that they are safe when they retire. Right. I couldn't agree more. And I've actually been learning, you know, a little bit about this from Carson when we were at Santa Anita. Gosh, I can't even remember when we were at Santa Anita now, maybe September, but um, Carson was she introduced me to a friend of hers who, who does a lot with aftercare and the both of them are just incredible. Carson and her friend, I think Carson, her name is Jeannie or Janine. Yeah. Jeannie. Yeah. She's on the West coast. And, um, I, I find myself with like a very heavy East coast bias, you know, Mm -hmm. more people being able to network on this side. Um, so she's been a huge help with uh, navigating, just you just different people there's different connections that you can reach out to and um and like back to caitlin's point with donating you know i think that there should be some sort of state allocated fund if this horse ran in this state then there should be at least we could give this horse 90 days to um you know have some downtime and transition and then and give us time so you know it's like they want the stalls empty the horses have to move we understand it's a business but also there should be some funding available for maybe a percentage of all the sales um, can go towards that state's horses when they retire from running and, and someone is there to figure out, well, we've got 90 days, we can figure out what they would be good at if they just need some downtime, if they need some rehab. Um, and there's got to be some sort of way to establish that for for longevity. And I think that that also ensures that the sport can go forward. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. How, how does something like that even get talked about on a state level? Like I know that there are politicians, Damon Thayer, I can think who, who is an avid horse racing fan. How do you even get legislation like that or bills like that in front of them? It seems like it would be a monumental effort to do so. Also, it's so much harder because we don't really have that central governing body. Right. People aren't in agreement with stuff that's going on with HISA. I read that California is starting to make kind of their own version mm-hmm. of HISA out there, if you will. Haven't really done a lot of research about it, but that's what it seemed like to me. So there's no central you know, body that 
it can go forward to legislation, to state representatives, to national representatives and be mm -hmm. like, hey, this is what we want. We need the funding for this. This is where we want the funding to go, yada, yada, yada. But there's not this type of people to go forward. And I mean, let's be honest, think about how, I don't want to get on a tangent here, but think about how corrupt all of our politicians are across the right. board in this country. Yeah. Yeah. They're not worried about stuff like this. So this is something mm -hmm. that we need to do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And why do you think there, there is no governing board? Like, why isn't there some kind of federal, you know, entity that, that governs this particular sport? I mean, there, there's one for every other sport that I can think of and not one for this. What is keeping these states from coming together and saying, we need an, an overarching group to regulate us? I think a lot of it is just because each track in each state are all, they're stubborn and they're prideful. Mm. They don't want to do the same things. They don't want to get along. I mean, just think of, you know, different, you know, media groups and different tracks that are in the same state that don't even get along. that are a hundred mm. miles apart from each other, but they don't get along for this reason or this reason. Certain, um, betting platforms are not allowed on certain tracks. And I mean, there's just so many underlying issues from the sport that have gone on for years that people don't want to agree on stuff. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's, it's just, it's a layer of stubbornness, but I think it would solve so many problems on so many different levels, especially when you think of rules and regulations, if everything was the same at every track at the right. same level, I, I think it would prevent a lot of things that do happen. Right. And it just seems like such an easy, easy thing to do. But with the way you describe it, it sounds like a lot of egos are involved and proprietary, you know, concerns and things like that. So, it, it, but are people just content to watch racetracks die? Like, it seems like every couple of months, another one's closing. I know I'm not, I, I yeah. don't, I don't like that at all. And I know there are ones being built. And I know a lot of people get mm -hmm. upset when they're like, oh, well, you just want to build a casino to go with the racetrack. So what? Uh, right. I mean, that gets more mm -hmm. people at the track that makes the purses better. Mm -hmm. Those people that are there may want to bet on races. It may be the first time they're seeing horse racing and it may pique their right. interests. And right. I mean, instead of letting them die, wouldn't that be a better alternative? I absolutely agree. Yeah, I, it just, it seems like something that could be done easily if people were willing to compromise and ultimately they don't seem to be. But um, Carson, I wanted to go back to your farm real quick. If Do I remember you mentioning a couple of weeks ago that maybe one of your hopes was to bring horses onto the farm or am I imagining a conversation with someone else? <laughs> no, that the conversation did happen. Um, <laughs> good, so good. I, I've been doing Good, good, good. Uh, what I had been doing, um, and similar to, I think, one of Caitlin's goals with getting back into transitioning the horse from to their second career from the track, um, I've been doing that since I was 15. Um, and also, the riding thing, prone to injury, not really great. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what the need for now is going to be all these broodmares that are retiring. They can't mm -hmm. have babies anymore. Um, but they still have maybe 10 or 12 more good years of life and they can, you know, be a companion uh, pasture 
animal, an older herd animal for uh, farms. And I just, uh, there's lots of gaps <laughs> to say the least, uh, wow. but that was one of our goals to take some retired broodmares, you know, they've already raced. Mm -hmm. So they had that career Then broodmare and they've had that career and now they deserve a soft spot. So that was going to be our, our target audience, if you will. Um, we will not be a large operation by any means, but every little bit helps, I think. Right. You'll be a safe space for them. It'd be nice if you and Caitlin could come together and change all of this for us and fix it. <laughs> would be so nice. Wouldn't it? And then you'd be our heroes and it would just be awesome. I believe but, in us. Right. And so tell us like that. This leads me into Churchill Downs because when I think about Churchill Downs, Caitlin, I think of like the capital of horse racing in the United States. Is, would you say that's a correct impression? It Churchill Downs, honestly, means so much more to me since I've been there so mm -hmm. much. And I've, you know, had a glimpse at the people that run that facility, the type of patrons that are there and the track in itself. And I mean, it's, it's a huge track for one huge. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest race track in America. And I mean, with the Kentucky Derby, other things they hold with the Derby museum, it is the Mecca of horse racing, especially in this country. And there's been so many other racetracks that I've been to. I've always been super biased to Keeneland, but <laughs> Churchill, you just walk in there and you just kind of have a different feel. Wow. It sounds amazing. I've never been, but I do hope you to get to there come. soon. Yeah. And so with that experience at Churchill, what was the easiest thing about transitioning to Churchill and what was maybe one of the more difficult things? Like what, what did it require for you to kind of transition into that job? Honestly, it was a big transition. I had had, you know, experience with doing podcasts and I had done some on-air bits for TVG and some different, you know, racing columns outside of the United States, but being on camera, you know, kind of full-time doing it for nine to eight hours a day, it's not something that's easy, but it was something that I felt like I could do. So mm -hmm. I just needed people to give me a chance, make me feel comfortable and make me believe in myself that yes, this will be hard but you can do it. And I, I say the hardest thing was <laughs> one of the first times that I actually did it was Clark stakes day, which actually is coming up tomorrow. It'll be, <laughs> I've, I've been doing it for over a year now, but I mean, I got thrown in on the deep end on graded stakes days. Ooh, gotcha. And, you know, it was just kind of this sink or swim. I started out rough, but I progressed on from there, but it, it was a huge learning curve, but I mean, I have to thank Joe and Scott who I'm on with regularly, James and Brandon, who I'm on with as well. And then our boss, Keith, they have just, we are such a close and supportive group of all of each other. I mean, there, there's no way that I could have ever done this with different people. Wow. That's great to hear. I think uh, with, you know, so much happening in the world right now, I think people are constantly focusing on this idea of minority groups and how are they being included in, in various industries. Did you find in all of your experiences thus far, is it getting better for women in horse racing? How much work do we still have left to do? Were you welcomed, you know, with open arms? It sounds like you were at Churchill. Definitely by the management and staff. I feel like I was at mm -hmm. Churchill for sure. Patrons kind of 50, 50. Mm -hmm. um, 
it seems like now that I'm on a lot more regularly, I do get a lot more hateful messages, but I would say overwhelmingly positive. People are so kind in person. I mean, there's nobody that's ever been rude to me to my face. It's always, you know, behind a screen. Of course Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. I I do think that there is plenty more that women do have to do in this industry, especially when it comes to maybe not a job like mine, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, higher ups, um, jockeys Mm -hmm. and trainers, especially women as well. Um, There can be more room made for them and then be given more opportunities because I know, well, there are obviously way more men in this industry, but I know a lot Mm -hmm. of times women aren't afforded the same opportunities that is that Mm -hmm. men are. I mean, it's just like that kind of across the world in every job, but I mean, horse racing is technically, you know, always been a male dominated sport. So Mm -hmm. it's just something, of course, there is much, much much more, more work to do, but I think this is also the best that it's been. I would agree. I I would see, you know, I would say that I see a fair amount of representation, even within the last three years. I mean, I was sitting at Westgate Casino last year with a friend who is involved in sports betting, but isn't in horse racing Twitter. And as soon as your face popped up on the screen, I started to scream. I even think I took a picture and sent it to you or posted it on Twitter, (laughs) but I was like, I know her, I know her. And it was the greatest feeling to see, you know, like this youthful, vibrant, energetic, and, and extraordinarily knowledgeable young woman on the screen doing her thing. It like, it, it empowered me. Uh, and is that something that you think about when you are in front of the camera? Are you thinking about the little girls who are at home who love horse racing, but don't necessarily know how they can get involved? Absolutely. And it's something that I think of all the time, because when I was growing up in it, you know, there were a few on-air women, but not many, not Mm -hmm. many. It's something that definitely has been more so in the past five to 10 years, I would say more, probably five to three where there've been much, much more of us, but yeah, I want to appeal to people out there to say, you know, you can do this. And there've been a few girls kind of college age and high school that have shadowed me and have reached out to me asking how they can do this. Um, And I'm, I'm down to help anybody. I want to help people. I want to bring people to the track and let them experience it, take them behind the scenes but yeah I I hope somebody does look at me and says I can do that I love it I love it I would you know uh I'll talk to you more about this off air but uh I would love for you to talk to my students one day I just think it would be really powerful yeah and I actually do have several students who are hoping to study equine science when they graduate so they would be very inspired by you and would love to hear your story but who were you looking up to? Like even just five years ago, maybe you said you, I think I read somewhere that you've been in the industry now for over a decade. So when you're just starting out in the industry, who are your role models? Who are you looking up to? Well, I, I've definitely had a few, um, mm-hmm. a lot of trainers and jockeys for sure. Um, not necessarily just women, but a lot of men as well, because there's oh, been a lot of men in this industry that have given me a chance. Mm -hmm. I will say every trainer that trains at Churchill Downs has Mm -hmm. been phenomenal to me. And I have gotten close with, you know, as a friendship level as well, Brad Mm -hmm. Cox, Steve Asmussen, um, Ian Wilkes, 
I, I talk to those people all the time. And those were people that I used to look up to in this industry. And mm-hmm. now I can walk up and just make small talk and just have a conversation with them because they have been so opening and welcoming in this industry. Wow. So I would definitely say people like that. And there's so many, you know, jockeys and people that work back in the barns, grooms, you know, hot walkers that are so open with information. I mean, this is really a tight knit industry. Yes, there are people that fight, you know, on horse racing Twitter, but yeah, I feel like most people have the same goals in mind. So I, I just, I, I guess if I would have to have examples, I would say, you know, Kate and Bradar paved the way a lot mm-hmm. with women. Donna Barton Brothers, the same way seeing her on NBC. And those two, I feel like I've learned a lot of just from watching them. And Maggie's another big one. She started, you know, several years before I did. But I think she's one of, if not the most knowledgeable female analyst in this industry. And she's somebody that I think a lot of people could learn a lot from. Absolutely. I love it when she interviews and rides. I think, you know, that level of multitasking to me is just amazing. I would love to be able to do that. Really? And when was the last time you did ride a horse? Like, is it last week? Is it a couple months ago? Um, probably within the last year, I would say it's definitely been yeah. a lot tougher for me to ride since COVID happened. And I'm a little right. bit busier you know, traveling. Um, one of my really close friends from college, she and I used to ride and I literally just reached out to her a couple of days and said, Hey, we need to ride soon. I have some time off. And then she broke her arm like two days ago. So probably, (laughs) I don't know if we will be anytime soon, but I I used to ride, you know, almost daily, but I haven't Mm -hmm. as much because COVID happened and I've been traveling and I moved back in 2020, but I, right. I definitely miss it, but that was something, you know, that I've talked about with Churchill is maybe doing something like that in the future, mm-hmm. especially on big stakes days and stuff like that. So could happen. I think that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think you'd be great at it. I'd love to see, you know, bouncing on the horse <laughs> and holding the microphone. Um, so when, when you definitely have this love of animals and I want to go ahead and get this question out of the way, if you're listening, Belterra, Bill, this question's <laughs> for you. So what is it? Do you, who gets, who loves pussy more? You or <laughs> you have, you have cats. Would you say cats are your second favorite animal in the world? Or uh, that P word is going to get me in so much trouble with Andy. He was like, you were doing so well until the P word. I was well, like, what Andy, she- Andy <laughs> likes them too of all varieties, but um, yes, I would think they're actually my first favorite animal in the world. Mm. Okay, I mean, and go ahead. I, I love horses, and horses, mm. you know, are my lifelong passion. Yeah. But I just have a special relationship with cats, right? I they just I don't know. I've always been scared of dogs. I know that sounds like super weird, and most people don't know that about me. But I don't know; really? they're just not my thing. But, but horses are huge. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but horses and cats are really just what speaks to me that I feel like I have this personal connection with. Okay. One of the sweetest tweets that you've ever put out is also one that Bill has tortured you with about the barn cats going missing. And the reason why I love that damn tweet so much was because if you know cats, you know that they are entirely functional animals and that when you have them in specific places, they're going to keep away your vermin. They're going to keep order and, you know, all things like that. So did we ever get to the bottom of that mystery? What was happening to the cats? 
Honestly, I think a few of them showed back up. Oh, um, good. I think, I think there was somebody that may have harmed one or two oh. of them for reasons. I don't know, but God help them in the next life. But um, yeah, I haven't heard of anything lately. And I've definitely had my ears open and I've been on patrol. <laughs> Believe you me, because nobody yeah. messes with the barn cats. Right. They're so functional. <laughs> they <laughs> don't ever they go take- to the West Coast because it's so suspiciously devoid of barn cats out there. It's like, where are all the cats? And I'm like, do the the coyotes come and snack them in the mountains? Like, what's going on? It was just so bizarre to walk on the backside. I I actually got Stormcat from Santa Anita. So (gasps) I wonder. Maybe they relocated all of them. They were in the witness protection program and (laughs) they've all been relocated. Right. Exactly. Stormcat was a CIA agent. So I, he had to retire. So I had to bring him back to quiet old Ohio. I love the storm cat updates. Cause I have a friend, uh, Kelly in Vegas who often gives updates about her little dog Coco and I live for them. It's like, it's a nice break. The horse racing Twitter can be so toxic. So it's nice to have those little breaks where it's like, Caitlin's talking about storm cat or, you know, what Kyle got you as a birthday gift for storm cat. And I love it. It's like, it's just good, wholesome content. And there isn't enough of that in horse racing Twitter, I think. So, um, when this is something I've wondered about, uh, and Carson, please feel free to jump in. Cause you, you've been around horse racing for so long. How do the both of you deal with horse breakdowns on the track? Like for me, it's a, it ends my day. It, it traumatizes me. Like, I feel like I can't watch anymore for the rest of the day, especially Caitlin and, and Carson with you both working on the track. How do you handle that and just keep going through your day and doing what you've got to do after a horse has been injured or worse? It's hard. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's something that's really hard, especially if you know the people that own the horse or people that have a personal connection with it, because there are, there is at least one or two individuals that have a connection with each and every horse that is on that track every single day. So it's hard, you know, thinking mm-hmm along those lines. And I think, I don't want to say you get immune to it eventually because you never do. You never do. And each case is different and there's nothing, you know, that's the same about all of those instances. But Mm -hmm. I I think of so seldom that it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I feel worse for the horse than anyone else because I wonder, you know, there are freak accidents where breakdowns do happen Yes, you clip heels and you go down and the horse unfortunately is fatally injured but sometimes Mm. it it affects me more when I wonder if the horse maybe had an underlying issue that could have been missed or was you know maybe a little bit negligent those cases affect me a little bit more I would say Mm -hmm. but I mean it's it's totally sad all the way around I wish it was something that we never had to deal with but like every sport athletes get injured it just the thing with horses is horses can't live with three or two legs. Right. Right. They're just, their bodies are not equipped to do that. And they're so fragile. And I mean, honestly, it's not just track breakdowns. People Mm -hmm. that have horses of any kind in any discipline, even if it's just a pasture horse can attest to this. They try Mm -hmm. to kill themselves in stupid ways all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. They're just the most 
prone. I don't even know what it is because bless their hearts. They seem very intelligent and thoroughbreds are probably the most intelligent. I'm going to be a little breed biased here um, mm-hmm. because you know they're like, they're like dogs, you know, huge mm-hmm. dogs. You can, they, they remember people, they remember situations. You can teach them tricks, you know? Right. So it's just like, how can you be this smart? And then you just go to the exact wrong spot. And it's just, you know, they're just, there was a really good um, paragraph about um, how the thoroughbred is built. And it's just like this huge machine designed to like explode if one little thing is off. Um, And it's very true because they can just be a horse that never raced in their life and they've never done anything and they just take a bad step. And it's, you know, fortunate. And the one thing I can say is when they are racing, I just have to hope that they have so much adrenaline going that they're, you know, it's like, it's quick, right? They don't <laughs> you know, steal and, yeah. and, and there's an intervention, be it, um, splinted and on the equine ambulance because the outriders get to them quickly and get them to treatment or, you know, the track that has to go in some cases. And hopefully it's, right. you know, as quick as can be, but you know, they were, running and are full of adrenaline and wow. yeah, I don't know. I, I think I have to hold on to that part about it <laughs> a lot. Right. It's the legs for me. It's like such a huge body. And then they have these four like spindle, like legs. It's like, oh my gosh, we're asking them to do so much and you want them to do it on turf, dirt and synthetic. Come on. You know? And yeah, I, go ahead. The, the physical makeup of horses legs Mm-hmm. is so much different than a leg on most other living creatures. So the anatomy of a horse's leg is the exact same mm-hmm. anatomy as your finger. Oh, really? Yeah. So imagine walking around on a finger <gasps> instead of a, like a leg where you have bipedal toes right. and stuff like that. All they have is one toe and then the nail extends out, which makes the hoof, but the bones in the leg are essentially the same bones a finger has in a human. This is how stupid I am, Caitlin. I just put my fingers on my desk and I'm like putting as much pressure on them as I possibly can. (laughs) I did the same thing just for dramatic effect. (laughs) Right, right. Like that would never work for me. Like I'd have to lose a lot more weight. So that that makes me want to look, who was it who had, was it American Pharaoh who had that huge heart and huge body? Or was it Secretariat? This is how- Secretariat was honestly what they kind of called the perfect horse. He was, he had a huge girth, so he wasn't fat, but he had a, you know, a huge engine on him. He had a big chest. His whole body was just big. He had powerful legs. So he was just so sturdy and he had a heart that when they did the autopsy after he passed away was almost two times its normal size. And that's how the horse was so good because he took in oxygen and could pump blood faster than most other horses could. That's incredible. It was just a freak of nature. Wow. And, and to think that, you know, he was probably a ticking time bomb. Like if you're saying like just one thing goes wrong, you know, that that's incredible that he was, you know, able to accomplish what he did. Wow. Very nice to hear. So I, I'm wondering when you handicap Caitlin, is it, do you immediately go to the horse flesh and you're looking at pedigree or do you go to the PPs first? And if so, are you DRF or are you team Briz? 
I honestly and- look at both of them actually. Nice. I DRF like and Briz. So I cross-reference kind of both of them and use them both in my handicapping. So mm-hmm. it depends on the type of race for me. Mm-hmm. I will definitely look at PPs first. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if it's main special weight, any type of main race, maiden claim, you know, what have you, or a horse is making a surface switch, a horse is stretching out in distance, you know, anytime mm-hmm. that there's a change or they're doing something for the first time, I do reference a lot of pedigree and, you know, kind of, you know, see them in the flesh or look at a picture, look at a video, look at mm-hmm. a past performance to get a sense of that horse's physical makeup, as well as their pedigree to think, yeah, I think they can handle this or no, I don't think they can handle this. And of course there's horses that buck every trend. Those are usually, you know, your durable famers or Mm -hmm. a horse like rich strike that does things that they're not supposed to do. So (laughs) a lot of it, it depends on the race for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what is your favorite type of race to handicap? For instance, I hate maiden races, but (laughs) I would almost imagine that you enjoy them. I love maiden races. I was going to say maiden races are probably my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) And so why do you like them so much? Because they're a pain in the ass for me. I think that's why I like them because they're a puzzle. You have first time starters that all you have to go off of is their trainer, their jockey, their pedigree and workouts. I think Picking one of those and being right is kind of like a rewarding thing because you saw things that people couldn't see in the form necessarily. And of course, if you have inside information, that's kind of different, but Mm -hmm. just kind of seeing the horses progress after they win their maidens and, you know, picking them and getting to that point, seeing the horses make the races for the first time. I I've always just kind of loved those races. Wow. So maiden races kind of allow you to flex your handicapping chops as well as like all of the knowledge that you have on the horse flesh. Maybe I would say I for it. sure they're, they are right. the greatest challenge, but that's why mm-hmm. I do like them. And what's your favorite um, type of track to handicap? Turf. Like turf. Okay. And why is that? I, I've just always really, really loved turf racing. I'm mm-hmm. not sure why. I mean, I love international racing. They mostly race on turf pretty Mm -hmm. much everywhere else in the world. Turf is the universal surface. And I think it's a lot more forgiving on horses. And I think it's a lot more consistent handicapping wise. And so you mentioned international racing. And that's another thing I've noticed about your tweets. I think you and I must have insomnia because there are times (laughs) when I wake up and you have tweeted about, you know, either the ascot or something that's happening in Korea, or how did you, how did you start to enjoy international racing? I, I, I'm still learning so much about racing in the United States. I can't imagine being ready to learn about, you know, different countries. So what, what's appealing about it for you? And how did you get into watching international racing? I would say just following racing in general it was something that continued to pop up mm-hmm. a lot, excuse me, in, um, you know, just on social media and watching the races, it would be mentioned. So I checked it out and it was something that I really fell in love with when Franco and Black Caviar were -hmm. racing about a decade ago, almost 12 or 13 years, I would say, but they were still to this day, some of the best horses that I have ever seen. Some of the best turf horses I have ever seen. And to watch them be unbeaten in their careers and put that unbeaten line on the record, you know, time in and time again, and still passing the test. And, you know, just thinking, is this, 
is this going to be snapped? Is Could the legacy be ruined? And they just keep going and they just keep going. They were really ones that really solidified mm-hmm. it for me that I needed to check out racing outside of the United States. And mm-hmm. Gizeldon and Orfev, the two, um, the Phillies Triple Crown winner and then the Males Triple Crown winner in Japan, them facing off against each other was wow. super cool. So, I mean, those are races that you should definitely go back and look at if you're wanting to get an mm-hmm. international racing, because that was the best of the best. And I came in kind of right at the right time to see stuff like that. So it was easy for me to get into. So in your job, you're, you're going to these different tracks in in the United States and you're learning the jockey colonies and the trainers and everything. How do you even have the bandwidth to keep track of jockey colonies, you know, at an international level? Is it just something that you find that you, you keep having to read about, or you're just constantly watching when, when it's available because you have such a depth and breadth of knowledge that I think is really impressive. It's, it's hard, I would say to kind of learn those colonies until Mm -hmm. you're there all the time. You get to honestly know these people on a personal level in a Mm -hmm. way, then you can kind of watch their races, kind of figure out their riding styles, what trainers they have, the best partnerships with. But I'd say Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I really enjoy much about my job is getting to have those personal relationships and seeing those people every day. Right. Do you find yourself rooting for them personally, even just outside of like the handicapping process and you picking that horse? Do you find yourself rooting for jockeys and trainers? A few of them, I would say ones that I definitely have, you know, closer friendships with and people close to my age, especially the girls a lot too. But Mm -hmm. yeah, there's, there's some that I would absolutely say that I definitely feel like I've developed, you know, more of a close relationship with not just professionally, but on a friend's basis with a lot of writers and trainers that I'm like, man, I would just love to see them win today, especially ones that don't win as often. Right. Right. I feel that way about, um, M Ellingwood out of Santa Anita. I really like her. She's such a nice kid. And I say kid, I think she's in her twenties, but you know, um, she just, she seems earnest and she works hard. And whenever she's, you know, riding around, I I always like key in on her and her horse. I, I, when I'm handicapping and she's riding in a race, I want that horse to be my pick. You know, (laughs) I want want that horse to be as good as, as I think she is. But um, do you envision yourself going to Ascot or, you know, Dubai and, and covering these races? Oh, I would, I would love to. I hope that as things continue to progress, I hope that the company I work for will do more with international racing. And I would love, 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 love to go to places like that. And I do have some downtime kind of around those times of the year. So either one of those is high up on my bucket list. Um, Real Ascot, especially it kind of now that the queen has passed away, a little bit of the mystery and excitement from Royal Ascot is kind of gone for me, but right. I still very, very much want to go in the next few years. Right. And did you hear that King Charles actually sold off, I think like 12 of the queen's horses? I was so disappointed. I was like, dude, she's not even in the grave yet. Can you hold <laughs> off? Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know how many she has, but I know she has a lot. So I'm hoping that that's not too many. Right, right. Yeah. Hopefully it it was just maybe some broodmares they didn't need or necessarily. Not that there's anything wrong with broodmares, but hopefully didn't sell off something that could have potentially, you know, been special on the track. But I know that he and uh, Queen Camilla are very much into racing as well. So I'm really happy to see the royal colors continuing under them. That's good to hear because I was a little nervous when he started selling off her horses. I was like, is he not a fan? But yeah, that, that's good to hear. I could totally see you over there in the fascinator in some kind of glorious gown, you know, uh, reporting. So <sighs> fingers crossed. I that would honestly just be the dream. Right. And so that kind of takes me back to Churchill Downs for a minute. When when you started and you, you've mentioned that you've done work with Churchill Downs prior to this past season, but when you walk on this season and it's like, you're firmly planted here. This is where you work. This is where you're committed. Do you have this kind of moment where you say to yourself, oh my God, I think I'm, I've made it or I'm on the brink of making it. I definitely have those thoughts and it, it's just crazy, especially, you know, being in this type of role and I mean, there's not like, there's anything wrong with other tracks, but to walk into Churchill Downs every day, home of the derby and stand in the paddock and be like they picked me right out of everybody they picked me you're that lady (laughs) (laughs) it's it it feels super rewarding because um for a while my parents told me they're like and they didn't mean in a bad way they were just kind of like what do you think you're gonna do in this industry like what how do you think you're gonna find something that's gonna be financially stable in this industry where do you think you can make a difference it just kind of asked me tough questions that I hadn't thought about Right. And kind of wanted me to have a fallback plan. But for mm-hmm. me, there was no fallback plan. Mm-hmm. This was what I have dedicated more than half my life to already. And it's what I want to dedicate the rest of my life to. So oh, there it. was never a fallback plan for me and to, mm-hmm. you know, walk into one of the tracks I work at, especially Churchill and look around and be mm-hmm. like, I made this, I, I made this happen. So right. it's, it's definitely always a proud moment. And you know, you have to know, and I, or I hope that you know that all of us who know you on horse racing, Twitter, in other ways, you know, we are just always rooting for you. Like I said, when you popped up on the screen at Westgate Casino in their, their sports book, I was screaming. I was like, I know her, <laughs> you know, it's just, we, we love you so much and you're just, you know, you're such a fresh face and, and you have fresh opinions. Um, Andy's going to kill me for the fangirling, but <laughs> is there anyone that you would like to meet that you haven't met yet who could make you fangirl if and when you met them? Oh, that's tough. It would definitely be somebody international. I feel like really. Okay. The only person I feel like I've really fangirled over was Dwayne Lucas. Like, Oh, I love him. He is somebody that I've always looked up to and he's just you know, one of the greatest of all time. And like now being up to like, be able to just like go give him a hug or something is just, it's like so cool. But I would probably say like Charlie Appleby or Aiden O'Brien, I think that would be amazing just to like talk to them or interview them, just following them for so long. And like their stables internationally. Um, I think what the Japanese have done is revolutionary. I would love to go to Japan and you know, talk to the Yoshida family. They own the best breeding operation in the world. So I would say definitely people like that, people that Mm -hmm. I don't get to see all the time. Gotcha. Was it the Yoshida family? Do they, do they own, um, Go or is that a different? 
Um, that's the Korean racing authority. Gotcha. Okay. Totally wrong. Wow. Uh, I couldn't have been more wrong if I had tried. I apologize. (laughs) No, but but, Korea and Japan are very much, you know, into racing and they're all, they're making huge waves, you know, in the Asian communities of doing Mm. the right things in horse racing because they're taking everything by storm. I mean, Japanese racing, they have the best breeding in the world and they race some of the best horses and they bring them over here and sometimes they kick our butts. So, right. Yeah. And so it's funny you bring that up because I have a friend who, uh, lives in Australia and she has an aftercare program for thoroughbreds. And whenever we talk about American racing, she immediately becomes so angry. She says (laughs) that we, we have the worst aftercare programs in the world and that, you know, she goes on, she goes into, you know, quite a bit of detail about slaughter and, and, and all of those things. And she's really impassioned. Would you say that other countries do it far better than we do? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. They, they care about the horse more as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are homes for them for aftercare Australia, especially there's a ton of places like old friends, not just for famous horses, but you know, tons of retirement farms. Of course, there's more land in Australia that's not as populated. Um, mm-hmm. So more places to put these horses. Right. But I mean, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of more geldings in that in Australia too. Most of their horses that race for more than a season are geldings and mares. <gasps> so really? mm-hmm, they, wow. they do geld a lot of their horses there. Um, but I mean, the horse population here is just so large. Right. That, um, and I don't ever want to say we're breeding too many horses because the full crop is still declining, mm-hmm. but we have to be better about finding jobs for these horses when they're finished and not even a job, just someplace for them to just be happy. Right. And I mean, a lot of them do need jobs to be happy, you know, mm-hmm. when they they get off the track because they're, they're full of adrenaline, they're full of energy. And right. I mean, lots of them become track ponies. Mm-hmm. riding horses, hunter jumpers, pleasure horses. There's, there's so many things these horses can do so many things. So could a horse who was a thoroughbred potentially become like, I don't know, like get involved with barrel racing once it's done with its thoroughbred career, or is that still too taxing? I would say they could for sure. Um, okay. Some different breeds do barrel horse, do barrel racing, like Mm-hmm. some quarter horses and a lot of paints and stuff like that. Their body structure is a little bit more stocky, Got but thoroughbreds can absolutely do stuff like that. Um, thoroughbreds can do anything and they're the most athletic of all the horse breeds I would say. So, I mean, the sky really just kind of is the limit for them. Gotcha. As, long, you- as long as they're sound. Right. Right. And so I've been seeing, a, I, I'm on Instagram and I see all these videos and they're usually videos of people who are rescuing the horses and bring them into aftercare programs. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say something only because I know no one from the community is listening. Fuck the Amish, right? <laughs> like the number of videos that I have seen of draft horses who have been just beaten into the ground, abused, tortured, not properly taken care of. You know what? Fuck the Amish, you know, like, and, and they're all coming from our Amish farms and I'm watching these videos crying and I'm like, you know what? You don't deserve electricity. <laughs> but like, the way yeah. they treat, uh, no, it's not and right. 
No, and then we, and I don't want to just, like, say it's the Amish community because they're stupid people in, in every stretch of the imagination. Right, right. They typically wait too long to get these horses medical care because they're trying to do stuff to, like, save money or not call a vet and try to take care of it themselves. If you're in doubt when your horse is hurt and you're not an expert, just call the vet. It's going right. to save you money in the long run, even though you think it's doing the opposite. Right. And so Nancy, who is producing for us tonight, um, she just brought up in chat that horses can be used as therapeutic riding animals. And I think I've yes. heard of some programs. Do you know of any programs that are using horses as therapy animals? Um, there's actually a few that um, I interned with with college um, and that we uh, use a lot of our horses with when I was mm-hmm. in college as well. Um, horses are some of the most therapeutic animals on earth. They just have a level of intuition that most other animals, maybe not even any animals have. Mm-hmm. They know when horses or excuse me, they know when people are in need, whether it be emotionally, physically, mm-hmm. anything. I mean, the difference I mean, not many people would do this, but you can take like a horse that's just kind of a jerk to everybody else and you can put them around a special needs person or a child and they're going to be totally different. Oh, so makes me so happy. Horses just have this level Mm -hmm. of deeper thinking and intuition than even some people have. So that's another good thing that horses can do is, you know, they can be somebody. Right. For someone, whether it be a child, someone with special needs, veterans, mm-hmm. you know, emotional therapy, they're animals that serve a greater purpose with that. I think there needs to be more facilities for that. Right. Um, that would be something fantastic for geldings, older mares. The, mm-hmm. the, the animals really get a lot out of that as well. Wow. And, you know, I think I heard about a program where it was for prisoners. Prisoners were yep. being paired with horses. And I thought it was incredible. You know, what, yep. what better way to kind of rehabilitate and get yourself ready to go back into society than taking care of an animal, especially one who, as you're saying, is so intuitive and giving. Um, Absolutely. There's, there are a lot more prison um, facilities starting to do stuff with that. And I've also seen some animal shelters that have partnered with prisons, kind of lower level offenders Mm -hmm. having cats and dogs. Oh yeah. Stuff like that. Caitlin, do you think horses can sense evil? Because the last horse I tried to pet, tried to snatch my hand off my body (laughs) and I felt like it was personal. Do you, do you think that they can also like they're, they have a protective nature about them? I think that if they know that somebody is, I think they can judge personalities, but I think also if they know that somebody is an experienced or if there's exactly. somebody they think they can yeah. get something away that they can get away with something yeah, um, or somebody even that is experienced and they're just like, I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah. I, don't I like can you. think, <laughs> yeah, they're very much like that. They, okay. they're funny creatures. I can think of my horse, actually, she would do anything for a child on her back Mm -hmm. I can ride her and I can beat the absolute crap out of her with a crop and she'll just look at me and be like "Eh." wow (laughs) so just as sassy as you sometimes eh exactly that's how they are 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So we're getting, thank you so much. Like, I feel like we were jumping all over the place just because you were giving me so many things I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Well, I'm happy to jump all over the place. This is honestly, this is great. I, I love that you're here with us because we all kind of started this together and you're, you just became so amazingly needed elsewhere uh, <laughs> and you had so many responsibilities elsewhere, but it's really nice to have you back. I do have one final question for you. All right. Shoot. Now, Mary, fuck, oh, kill. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, fuck, I, I think kill, I know Caitlin. the answer to this one. I think I can guess this one. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for your three options? Okay. All right. Belterra Bill, Flavian Pratt, or Kyle? You have to marry, fuck, kill. <laughs> Oh my here god. We go. We're getting her in trouble with Kyle tonight. So here we go. <laughs> well, you can't do that because Flavian is Kyle's favorite jockey. Oh, okay. absolutely loves Flavian. Okay. <laughs> so I feel like you would ruin Flavian for him, even though he would never hear this. Oh, Bill's right. gonna get some action out of this. Oh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we have to kill Flavian. Is that what we're saying? We would just for his safety and just because Kyle loves him so much. Right. Not that I have a problem with him. That's not what I'm saying. Right. Bill, it's a Christmas miracle. My God. I feel like it would be easier to loan me out to Bill, if that makes sense. I agree. I don't know that he could handle you for long periods of time. I don't know. I feel like he's more than my level of crazy. You think? Yeah, just in you, case you didn't answer correctly, they upgraded me to a suite at the golf house. I have room for you, Caitlin. Oh, nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. Caitlin, did I get the correct couch. answer? Yes, you did. You're all good. I'm just thinking that no one really fights back at Bill the way that you do. Like he clearly <laughs> says things to try and get under your skin. He loves you, but he wants to get under your skin and you just oh, keep coming sure. back at him. It's, it's all, it's all in good fun. Um, I know he says stuff to try to make me laugh. I will hysterically laugh at that show. It's so funny. I know there's things I should not hear on there. Right. And chances are my name probably shouldn't be in there, but I'm like, Hey, I don't even care. This is hilarious. Right. It's so so refreshing. We need some, we need stuff like that in the industry. It is so Mm -hmm. refreshing. And, uh, Joe Chris effect that I work with he and I were talking about that the other day we were like mm-hmm. we just need to make a network of like goofballs for comedic relief in this industry right. and I mean right. I think that so many people would just love that because there's so many characters in the sport I agree I'm so sick and tired of hearing about you know missed tickets and look what I did in this and when Bill just posts you know some random shit it's like ah there's Bill that's what I needed <laughs> exactly uh, there's so many things that you know are derogatory in this industry but hey if there is some good harmless drama and some good fun on those spaces I will be there every Thursday night and I don't care that it's Thanksgiving tomorrow I'm still going to be there right and so last week we were supposed to do this last week but Caitlin thank God realized that it was Thursday during spaces and the entirety of the group was just like yeah no we can't miss spaces so we can't (laughs) we can't I feel like even more the past few weeks when there's been, you know, some real happenings in the industry, the spaces have gotten very popular. There's been some names in the spaces that I have seen that I'm like, 
what are you doing here? Ooh, right. So and I does somebody it, know you're here? <laughs> I think it's very much catching on that people are doing it because I'm not going to lie to you. When I come to the track after spaces, there are jockeys and trainers that I know have been listening and have seen this stuff because we talk about it. I love that. I love that. I always scroll through spaces to see which nicknames I don't recognize because I'm like, oh, that's a hider Nick who's in under that Nick, you know? Uh, oh, it's there. Definitely, there's definitely burner accounts, right? Listen right. to this. So hopefully nobody way. offs me for saying that, but I, there definitely are. There would have to because be. people people know way too much about it to mm-hmm. not be listening. Right. Right. Um, well. All right, we're going to wrap it up so we can all get on with our lives and get ready for Thanksgiving so Carson can sit in her room and, and relax after such a long day. And Caitlin, you are just the best, and, and we love you to bits, and you are welcome back whenever you want to come. Uh, we would love to have you back. I will definitely come back, and I love you guys very much. Yay, we are huge <laughs> Caitlin supporters. So. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening in. Uh, Thank you, Caitlin, for being with us. Carson, thank you for being here and making this happen and, and, you know, having this conversation with us. And Nancy, thank you for being the best producer that we could have. And we'll have you back on mic next week. So thanks everyone. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. Have a good holiday. You too. You too. Happy Thanksgiving.